holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgives, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Well, good evening. Uh, let me get uh, the obvious out of the way first. Yes, I am wearing red pants. Uh, Randy says that I'm the only one in the office who would wear red pants, and I'm not sure how to feel about that. Um, also tonight, we are, many of you know, we are beginning to live stream our worship services, the 1040 and the evening worship. This is the first time we'll stream the evening worship, and then in post-production, they will put those on the website with just the, just the sermon. But if you're at home or you're, you're um, out of town, you can join us, uh, live stream, and, uh, we'll, uh, and we would love to have you do that. So if you're at home, welcome. I'm sorry. Um, also, I appreciate, sort of, Randy assigning this topic to me. Uh, I'm glad Kevin gave us the parental guidance warning, and we'll see if we need it tonight. Um, I'm using several resources from Ben Stewart and Tim Keller and Breakaway Ministries tonight as we talk about the topic of love versus lust. And I think it's important that we have these discussions here at church. Because if we don't have them here, where will we have them? It's important to do that here. And on this topic particularly, because God's standards, God's plans, God's blessings are under assault, both from those without the church and those from even within. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10:5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Have you thought about that, taking captive every thought? So those thoughts that come in, you have to hold them out here and say, wait a second, is that a godly thought? Is that a Christ-like thought? You need to submit to the truth of Jesus Christ. Are we able to do that? We have to be able to be prepared to thoughtfully answer the case made by those in the world, and sometimes those in the church. And we're thankful to Paul for the guidelines on how to do that in love and gentleness. I'm going to stick to my notes maybe a little bit more than usual even because of our topic tonight because uh, another reason that uh, we need to have a lesson like this comes from the days of yore. Um, whenever a sea captain would bring a ship near the coastal waters and would realize that they were really in over their heads, they were unfamiliar with the territory, they were unskilled, they would run a white flag up the mast, and those who were local, those captains who knew the area, would know that that ship needed assistance. And so they would board a small vessel, and they would row out to the boat, and they would board it, and they would take the helm. And when they did so, they would raise another flag, a white flag and a red flag together. And it would signal everyone that the boat is under a new command, that they have the pilot that they need, that we don't need any help. We have someone who can safely navigate the waters for us. It's time that we raise the flag and say that we need help. In the unpredictable waters of love, we need a guide. We need someone who's familiar with the area, someone who can navigate us away from the dangers hidden just under the surface that could shipwreck us. We need someone that can lead us safely to shore. 
Well, tonight Jesus is our captain and he knows the way. So let's, let's start with his, uh, his words. Because Jesus has things to tell us about how to live in every area of life, including love and sex. So turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me, Matthew chapter 5. It's in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Many of you are probably, not many, some of you are too young to remember President Jimmy Carter. He was also a Baptist Bible school teacher, and so he was commenting one time in an interview that he had done this very thing. He had had a lustful thought about a woman who is not his wife. And the media, you know, mocked him. The comedians made fun of him. They were relentless. But he was trying to express this idea that, yeah, I've been there. As a human being, as a man, I've crossed that line. And a lot of non-Christians hear these words of Jesus and they say, see, Christians, they hate passion, they hate sex, and why not? Jesus seems to not like it either. And in fact, many Christians have probably understood it this way as well, but I, I want to caution us tonight. Let's take another look at it. Let's not be too hasty. I think there are a couple of good reasons to take a second look at this passage. One is, the Bible throughout isn't negative about sexual desire. If we were to open the book carefully and look at some of the verses there, I think we would find some things that even for our 21st century ears might make us blush. I mean, Genesis chapter 2 opens with God bringing Eve to Adam, and he breaks out into this poem or song or whatever you imagine him doing, and there they are, a naked man serenading a naked woman in the presence of God. That's how it starts, right? There's a passage in Proverbs. It says, husbands should be satisfied with their wife's breasts. You can't ignore that one. It's pretty obvious, right? Sometimes people ask, are you one of those people that takes the Bible literally? Well, it has its advantages sometimes. <laughs> this is why Kevin warned you. I talk to college students all day, every day. Who knows what's happening? You can go to Song of Solomon, and it's pretty clear, even in the poetic language, that you have two lovers who are describing themselves in a state of physical arousal. What is my point? My point is this. The Bible is filled with the celebration of the glory of sexual love. The Bible doesn't project a negative view of what God created to be good. And so what's going on here? What is Jesus doing? Now, let me just start out by saying Jesus uses an unusual word here that we translate often as the word lust. And it's unusual at least in how it relates to the word, to, to the physical desire. Jesus uses a compound Greek word that I can't possibly pronounce. And we translate that word as lust. But interestingly, that is the same Greek word that is used to translate the Hebrew word for covet. And so when you go back to the 10th commandment that says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, that's the same word that Jesus uses here now in Matthew chapter 5, that you shall not look lustfully upon a woman. You shall not covet her. 
And so what is he saying? I think he's saying that directing these desires towards taking, obtaining, or enjoying what is not lawful is forbidden. That action, that action of the will is forbidden by the 10th commandment. And Jesus confirms, he says, that's, that's not right. That's sin. And all throughout this section in the Sermon on the Mount, he's pointing out the root causes of sin that are enumerated in the law. So he's saying, yes, adultery is a sin, but the sin that entered the heart at the moment you determined to seek out that relationship, the moment a man even looks at a woman for that purpose, adultery has already polluted the heart. Jesus is reiterating that the law forbids directing one's desire towards that which is not lawful. Exercising a sexual appetite outside appropriate boundaries is the problem. The point in this passage is that once the will is turned toward illicit behavior, sin has already entered the heart. And as James says, once it is fully conceived, it will bring forth death. That's the point. Jesus is warning us about the orientation of the heart. Fixing one's desire upon a woman or a man that is not rightfully one's own. And so my question is, why does Jesus go there? Why does he take it from the simple 10th command to a matter of the heart? And I think I would say this. I think I would say because Jesus knows what a difference it makes. He knows what a difference it makes because inside the marriage covenant, you find results and things that you cannot find outside of those boundaries. Inside a marriage covenant, you have a place of safety. You have a place where you can be yourself. Genesis says they were naked and unashamed. You're free to stop marketing and stop selling who you think somebody else wants. You're committed to that person, sometimes in spite of your feelings. And when that happens, your feelings grow even deeper. If you are a parent or a grandparent, you know this. You give and give and give and give to your children. And it is a very long time until they can meaningfully give back, isn't it? And yet we love them. We're invested in them. We have deep feelings of affection for them. It also brings freedom. A covenantal relationship brings freedom. It's exactly the opposite of a relationship outside of marriage where freedom means no commitment. In that relationship, you're a slave to your feelings. If I don't like how things are going, okay, I'll leave. I'll quit. I can dissolve this relationship with a text or in a phone call. And it's that simple. If you want to be truly free in a relationship, make a promise. And then outside the marriage covenant, sex becomes more like our understanding of what it really means to covet. It becomes a consumer product, a marketplace commodity. There's a research study done recently on people who cohabitate together and on premarital sex in the United States. And the researchers found some really interesting things. They found that people said that their standards for their live-in partner, the standards they had for the person they were currently living with, were lower than that they would have for a spouse. Respondents often said things like, I felt like I was always auditioning to be his wife. Many of them said that they injected sex into the relationship just to keep it going. So what's happening in these two realms of being inside and outside 
of marriage. You know, inside, you are following through with your body promises you have made with your life. Outside of marriage, you are making promises with your body that you have not made with your life. And in that context, a physical relationship looks a whole lot like greed. Consider the relationship between greed and money and its similarity to how we are beginning to see in our culture, not beginning to see, we are seeing in our culture, our view of sex. You become selfish. You want more and more and more and you want it just for yourself. It's addicting. Just like people are addicted to money, they have to have it. They'll do anything to get it. They'll trample people. They'll work hard for it. They'll neglect their family to have more of it. And it can lead you to a fantasy world where you can begin to fantasize about it. Some people begin to look for money to give them the affirmation and security that only God can give. One of the questions I will often ask my students when we get onto the topic of idolatry, and we never talk about it as idolatry, but one of the questions I will like to ask is, is under the category of the drift test. And the drift test says this, when you're really not thinking about much of anything, what are you thinking about? What does your mind drift to when you're not thinking about really anything? Whatever that is, that's a good indication that it might be an idol for you. It might be producing a fantasy. And it leads to this endless, bottomless pit of what if? What if that were true? And so Jesus says it's possible to have that same idolatrous attitude and disposition toward sex. And so I think that's why Jesus is so strong, so strong in his language and temperament about how we rid ourselves of this willful desire to covet someone else sexually outside of marriage. Look at verse 29 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus knows that this is serious business, that it is a matter of life and death. And if you're someone or you know someone who's been trapped in sexual sin, that's not news to you tonight. And in this passage, Jesus probably isn't being literal. And I say probably because think about it. If you were literally given the choice between gouging out your own eye or looking at pornography again, which one would you choose? I can't tell you how many young men I've sat across We've had coffee and discussions about how fed up they are with the cycle of looking at pornography. And they tell me their stories, sometimes very powerfully and tearfully, and they ask me, what should I do? What am I going to do? And so I'll begin to tell them, here are some concrete things you must do. And again and again, they begin to fidget. Their eyes are looking everywhere. They're distracted by their phone. They're disinterested. Why? They don't want to hear what I start with. You have to be willing to be extreme. You may have to give up your right to private internet access. You might have to move the computer into the living room. You may have to give up your right to see certain movies. 
You might have to move your phone to the kitchen where everyone can see it. You may have to give someone permission to walk in on you anytime, anywhere. And they say, anytime, anywhere, anytime, anywhere. You do not baby step your way out of that kind of lust. And it's not just about behavior modification. It's about sin mortification. It's not about just how you act and what you do. It's about putting to death the sin that's in our lives. And let me just pause here to extend this invitation. I was talking with uh, Liz McElroy, who works out at Oklahoma Christian University. On this Wednesday night at 5 o'clock in the Harvey Business Center, uh, room 120, they're going to have a special presentation uh, from Fight the New Drug. It's an organization and a group that gives people um, just tools and skills and information about pornography. And so if that particularly is something that you want to learn more about, that you need information on to help other people, I encourage you, come to that presentation, 5 o'clock at Oklahoma Christian on Wednesday. There's free Chick-fil-A for the first 100 people, so you know I'll be there. If you don't hear anything else from me tonight about this subject of lust, I want you to hear this. Listen carefully. Sin in general, and lust in particular, always, always, always takes more than it gives. It promises more than it delivers. And it takes you further than you ever wanted to go, and it leaves you for longer than you ever wanted to stay. If this kind of intentional coveting lust that Jesus is talking about takes and takes and takes, then the love that Jesus knows and shows gives and gives and gives. That's the other half of our lesson tonight is love. What does that kind of love look like? In 1 John chapter 4, you can turn there with me. As John was talking to us about love, he said, Beloved, let us love one another. And then he moves on to what is that motivation? Why would somebody even want to care about another human being? And he doesn't motivate us with a threat. He doesn't say, if you don't love, God's going to be mad at you. And he doesn't motivate you with a reward. He doesn't say, if you love people, you're going to be wealthy. So how did he motivate them? He didn't point forward. He points backward. He says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He doesn't point downstream, he points upstream because God love, God's love flows down to us. And when you know him, it's the most natural thing in the world to share that love with other people. When you know you're beloved, it's easy to love other people. When you're tapped into an inexhaustible resource of love, it's easy to be a source of love. So do you want to be a great lover of people? Do you want to be a source of life to your family and your friends and your coworkers, the person you might date, the person you might marry? You need a source of life and love. That's how it was always meant to be, the beloved love. I like how Ben Stewart says it. He says, love embraced becomes love extended. Love embraced becomes love extended. It's the natural outworking of being loved by God. And some of us might be thinking, well, how do I know 
that I'm loved by God? How, how do I feel loved by God? Is there a way that I can know it and feel it? Let me give you a simple principle. Our affection for one another is driven by truth. It's driven by truth. If you want to feel loved, then you have to begin with knowing that you are truly loved. Let's take that out of the spiritual world for just a minute. How do you know that anybody loves you? How do you know, really? You can't see it, right? Somebody doesn't walk up to you and say, hey, what do you got there? Oh, I got a cup of love. Right? That's not what it looks like. You might say, Evan, love is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel its effects. And you'd be right. Love is invisible, but it's not imperceptible. I mean, think about your favorite novels and movies, and when a writer or director wants you to know that two characters love each other, what do they write into the story? There's always three things that are present when love is there. Three ways we know that God's love is present. First of all, love sends. Love sends, S-E-N-D-S. Love doesn't sit still. It's moving. It expresses itself in action. You know that love is there because the lover initiates. In the movie, The Princess Bride, the beautiful Princess Buttercup tells her captors, I know that Wesley will come for me, right? How does she know that? Because they share true love. She understood that the lover always moves to be with the beloved. Love initiates. Love sparks up conversations. It breaks into song. It writes poetry. It sends letters. It buys flowers. It crosses oceans. I promise you, you will never see a young man who realizes that he is in love sit back on the couch and play video games. He'll get up off the couch and he'll go find that woman because love initiates. And God reminds us of this over and over again, that he's the pursuer. He's the one who initiates. 1 John 4, 9 tells us, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That word manifest means obvious or clear or brought into the light. Well, what did we see to know that God loves us? Here's what, he, here's what we saw. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God didn't send a note. He didn't write a song. He didn't send a list of to-dos. He sent his very best. He sent his one and only son. And notice when God did this, the distinction that John made, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He didn't wait. He didn't wait until we were worthy of it. He didn't wait until we were cleaned up and sanitized and organized and religious and moral or good. God came for us while we were far away, while we were enemies, while we were hostile. So how do you know that God loves you? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The historic appearance, appearance of Jesus is exhibit A in God's love for you. So love sins, but love also sacrifices. Love gives everything for the sake of the beloved. Jack will freeze to death in the Atlantic Ocean to save Rose from the Titanic. In Frozen, Anna will throw herself in front of Han's falling sword to save her sister, Elsa. Bruno Mars declares, I'll catch a grenade for you, right? Why? Why does he sing that? Because he knows that we know that true love will sacrifice for the beloved. Love is willing to sacrifice for the good of the other. 
1 John 4.10. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big church word, isn't it? Propitiation. It takes us back to the Old Testament imagery of the sacrifice of the lamb, that the blood covers the sin of the people. And John says, that's what Jesus did for you. His death on the cross fulfilled that Old Testament picture. I have conversations with all kinds of people, with all kinds of backgrounds and experiences, and what I've found is that all of them have this sense of things aren't as they should be, that they're not as they should be. Even the least religious people have a sense that there's something wrong. They feel a weight, they feel a guilt, and they ask themselves, either out loud or in other ways, how do I make this right? How do I feel okay again? How do I make myself right with God? John declares that Jesus took on our sin, that he opened up the way for us to have peace with God. God's love compelled him and propelled him to sacrifice so that we could be fully who we were meant to be. The weight of your guilt and shame doesn't need to sink you into the grave. Jesus conquered the grave by his sacrifice because that's what love does. I had a roommate in college who was very meticulous financially. He kept all his receipts. He kept a ledger of his expenses. He was a very careful spender and saver. And then he fell in love with a woman who was none of those things. She spent a lot of money, had credit card bills, had mountains of school debt. And she had a family that was like higher security for the wedding kind of family stuff. And I remember seeing him deliberate and think, what am I gonna do? And I watched him count the cost and he wondered, is that gonna ruin my credit score? How long is it gonna to take to pay these things back? How long are we gonna to have to deal with really difficult family issues? But I watched him make the decision. I want to be with her. Even if I have to pay a steep cost, I will gladly pay it. Because that's what love does. Love sacrifices. So how do you know God loves you? Because Jesus left heaven he relinquished all the comforts. He took the form of a servant and sacrificed his life so that we could be forgiven and made clean and brought into the family of God. Jesus himself declared, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. There's no more he could give us. So love sins, love sacrifices, and finally, love stays. Love stays. If you love someone, you love being in their presence. And you will stay even when it's hard. Two people will stand up in front of their friends and family and witnesses and they'll say, I promise to love you forever. Under what conditions? Well, whether we're rich or poor, right? Whether we're better or worse, in sickness and in health. Why do we say that? because we understand that true love willingly commits to stay even when it gets hard, even when it's complicated. It's why in the movie The Notebook, Noah stays long hours at the nursing home reading to Allie, even though she has Alzheimer's disease and can't remember who he is. In 51st Dates, Adam Sandler's character romances every day Drew Barrymore's character because her short-term memory means every morning she wakes up, she has no idea who he is. 
and he has to fall in love with her all over again. True love stays when everyone else walks out. We can know we are loved because God's love abides with us and his very spirit is inside us. 1 John 4, 13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. How do we know that we're loved? Because God invited us into his family and then he moved into us and he stays. Not too long ago, I was in, just a few years ago, I was in Honduras and I met Phil and Donna Waldron. They run a mission upreach in Western Honduras. And they were telling me about their son, Harrison, who is about a senior in uh, college at Harding University and their soon-to-be daughter-in-law, Haley. And they got married that summer after we were there and it was a big ceremony, I believe in Searcy. And they were all excited and it was a wonderful thing and everybody was present and they exchanged their vows and life began for them. And about a month later, Haley and Harrison went to a friend's wedding in Pennsylvania. And while the groomsmen were out riding four-wheelers, Harrison was in a terrible ATV accident, had awful brain injuries. He was in the hospital for months and months and months, suffering debilitating brain complications. Haley said that it would have been easy to say, I didn't sign up for that. This isn't what I bargained for. This isn't what I thought was gonna happen. But she didn't say those things. She willingly shouldered whatever inconveniences may come because she wanted to be with her beloved. And God is the same way with us. That word abide in 1 John 4 simply means to stay right here. He knows we're gonna struggle. He knows we're going to falter. He knows we're going to be weak. But no matter what comes, his love declares, I'm going to stay. Because that's what love does. Do you see the picture that scripture paints of God's love? That if we know that we're connected to the inexhaustible forgiveness and grace and care of the God of the universe, then we're free to extend that to other people. When we know we have an abundance, we're liberated to be generous. When we're connected to a source of love, we can be a source of love. You want to be a great friend, a great coworker, a great husband or wife, then receive the love of God and you'll have an abundance to give away. As we close tonight, I want to share some history. And this history may sound actually a little bit contemporary. When the kingdom of God began to break into the Roman world, women were drawn to Christianity. They were just drawn to it in great numbers. In one reference in the, in the history, it says in such large numbers that by AD 370, the emperor Valentinian, an opponent of the movement, issued a written order demanding that Christian missionaries stop calling on the homes of pagan women. Why were women so drawn to this countercultural movement? It's because they were afforded far higher status than women in the rest of the Greco-Roman world. And it didn't help that men had a very low view of marriage. Several ancient documents contained their laments about how, what a burden it is to care for a wife. And prostitutes were readily available. There was loose morality among men. Why promise to care for one woman when you can be with as many as you want? And when they did marry, they often married very young girls. 
And when they had female children, it was commonplace to abandon them or kill them. And so eventually the ratio of men to women became skewed. Because when men's sexuality goes unchecked, women and children lose. And ultimately, so do men and so does society. Christianity grew in that environment at a rapid pace because it approached sexuality so differently. Women were honored. Men didn't commit incest or child marriage or divorce or promiscuity. They began to love one woman, their wives. They also faithfully joined their wives in raising their young girls. So why did so many Romans flock to what initially had been a dangerous cult? At least they saw it that way. Because they saw in Christianity a way of navigating life, of understanding love and sexuality that allowed everyone to flourish. Men and women and children, they were happier and healthier. Families were places of life. Sexuality was governed by love and not lust. Women and men mutually honored one another. In essence, that picture that Paul paints in Ephesians 5 became real. This is what it looks like to have a faithful, loving marriage, and this is what it looks like for God to be in love with his people. And that's where it begins, with a commitment to a loving God. You see, we can careen into the dangerous seas all on our own, or we can surrender the helm to the one who can safely pilot us through those rough seas. If you need the prayers or the help of this church to surrender your life to God, or if you're ready to surrender your life to him through baptism tonight, we're here to walk with you in that decision. Will you join us together as we stand and sing tonight?